MSW Media. News was wearing daily beans, daily beans, daily beans, daily beans. Hello. And welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, December 18th, 2020. Today, the House Judiciary will reissue the McGahn subpoena in the new Congress, unraveling the depth and breadth of the Russian hack. Trump's tax holiday has to be repaid in the middle of the pandemic winter, impacting every military and federal employee family. Deb Holland has been tapped to be the first Native American Interior Secretary. And an opinion piece from Trump's former Homeland Security Advisor, Tom Bossert. I'm your host, A.G. Hey, everybody. Great show for you today. Today, I'll be speaking with Kyle Cheney, the congressional reporter from Politico, about the House judiciary moving forward with the McGahn investigation in the next session of Congress. And to wrap up Empathy Week, which is just sort of a, a kismet that sort of happened, we have Shelley Tygelski. She's the founder of the organization featured on CNN Heroes called Pandemic of Love. It's a really incredible story. And we're learning more about the scope of the Russian hack and how they're setting themselves up to leverage the destruction of systems in the future. And, of course, it is Friday, so we will have the Daily Beans happy hour for you today at 4 p.m. Pacific. And later in the show, Amy Carrero will be joining me for the Good News segment. And, and I think we've got a couple of cases for Amy's court, too, so that should be fun. And we do have a lot of headlines to get to, so let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. Okay, the lead story today comes from Natasha Bertrand, our friend at Politico, who writes, quote, The Energy Department and National Nuclear Security Administration, which maintains the U.S. nuclear weapons stockpile, have evidence that hackers ex- accessed their networks as part of an extensive espionage operation that has affected at least half a dozen federal agencies. And this is according to officials directly familiar with the matter. On Thursday, the Department of Energy and NNSA Uh, began coordinating notifications about the breach to their congressional oversight bodies after being briefed by Rocky Campione. That's the chief information officer at DOE. They found suspicious activity in networks belonging to the Federal Energy Regulation Commission, that's FERC, um, Sandia and Los Alamos National Laboratories in New Mexico and Washington, the Office of Secure Transportation, and the Richland Field Office for the Department of Energy. The hackers have been able to do more damage at the FERC than other agencies, and that's according to the officials, but they did not elaborate. Federal investigators have been combing through networks in recent days to determine what hackers had been able to access or steal, and officials at the Department of Energy still don't know whether the attackers were able to access anything. That's according to the people, noting that the investigation is ongoing. And they said, they told Politico, that they may not know the full extent of the damage for weeks. This could take weeks to unravel. Spokespeople for Department of Energy didn't respond for requests for comment. Uh, The FBI, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's CISA, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence acknowledged the ongoing cybersecurity campaign in a joint statement released on Wednesday, saying they had only become aware of the incident in recent days. As we know, CISA was headed by Chris Krebs, who was fired by Trump recently, and many of the top jobs within our national security and intelligence apparatuses have also been fired and replaced with Trump loyalists that have little to no experience, including top Pentagon jobs, the number one, two, and four positions there, top jobs at the National Security Council, and the top legal counsel at the NSA, and, of course, the the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, who Mueller, by the way, testified, was the most important person to assure Russia could not hack us again. 
Trump also has shaky relationships with the heads of the FBI and CIA, neither of whom, that's Gina Haspel, well, I should say uh, Chris Ray and Gina Haspel, respectively, neither of whom were in attendance at the latest cabinet meeting yesterday. That's the one that Trump didn't allow the press into. And of course, the head of the Department of Homeland Security is a Trump sycophant, and federal judges have ruled that he's not even there legally and has no legal authority anyhow. And yet... Though all of these new details about the biggest national security breach in the history of the United States are coming out, and we have over 300,000 dead from the pandemic, Trump remains silent. All Trump talks about is the election and how he thinks he won it. Um, that's, that's his only narrative. And it makes you wonder whether this dismantling of our national security apparatus wasn't a gift to Putin, like a going-away present. The former Homeland Security Advisor to Trump, Tom Bossert, has penned an op-ed for The Times, opening with, I was the Homeland Security Advisor for Trump. We are being hacked. The magnitude of this national security breach is hard to overstate. He goes on to say, the Russians have had access to a considerable number of important and sensitive networks for six to nine months. Keep in mind, as I read this to you, this is Bossert speaking, but now I'm, I'm letting you know. Keep in mind, they just found out about this, and they've had access for six to nine months. Bossert continues, the Russian SVR will surely have used its access to further exploit and gain administrative control over the networks it considered priority targets. For those targets, the hackers will have long ago moved past their entry point and covered their tracks and gained what experts call persistent access, meaning the ability to infiltrate and control networks in a way that's hard to detect or remove. And sidebar here, all of this, all of these sources and methods from the GRU and the SVR were outlined in volume one of the Mueller report, the one that Barr made inappropriate redactions to, to downplay the scope of the importance and, uh, and danger of, of the hack. And, and, and here we are as a result. And while the Russians, he continues, while the Russians did not have time to gain complete control over every network they hacked, they most certainly did gain it over hundreds of them. It will take years to know for certain which networks the Russians control and which ones they just occupy. The actual and perceived control of so many important networks could be easily used to undermine public and consumer trust in data, written communications, and services. In the networks that the Russians control, they have the power to destroy or alter data and impersonate legitimate people. Domestic and geopolitical tensions could escalate quite easily if they use their access for malign influence and misinformation, both hallmarks of Russian behavior. So what can be done? Bossert says the remediation effort alone will be staggering. It will require the segregated replacement of entire enclaves of computers, networks, hardware, and servers across vast federal and corporate networks. Somehow, the nation's sensitive networks have to remain operational during this time despite unknown levels of Russian access and control. A do-over is mandatory— and entire new networks need to be built and isolated from compromised networks. The response must be broader than patching networks. While all indicators point to the Russian government, the United States and, ideally, its allies must publicly and formally attribute responsibility for these hacks. If it is Russia, Trump must make it clear to Vladimir Putin these actions are unacceptable. The U.S. military and intelligence community must be placed on increased alert. All elements of national power must be placed on the table. While we must reserve our right to unilateral self-defense, allies must be rallied to the cause. The importance of coalitions will be especially important to punishing Russia and navigating the crisis without uncontrolled escalation. President Trump is on the verge of leaving behind a federal government and perhaps a large number of major industries compromised by the Russian government. He must use whatever leverage he can to protect the United States and severely punish the Russians. According to sources, however... Trump has been briefed on this attack, the scope and breadth, but remains silent. 
And uh, let's switch gears here. Two more firsts from the Biden transition team. Michael Regan, if confirmed, will be the first black man to lead the EPA. And Deb Holland will be the first Native American to lead the Interior Department. Interior, which manages about a fifth of land in the United States, will play a a critical role in delivering on Biden's vow to combat global warming. The former vice president has pledged to halt all new oil and gas drilling on public lands and waters. That's a daunting task that faces both legal and political obstacles. The extraction of oil, gas, and coal in these areas account for nearly a quarter of the nation's annual carbon output. Interior also oversees vast protected areas, including more than 109 million acres of wilderness and 422 national park sites, as well as national monuments and wildlife refugees. It safeguards more than 1,000 endangered species and manages massive water projects in the West that help sustain farmland and provide drinking water for major cities, including Las Vegas and Los Angeles. An individual familiar with the transition's thinking, who spoke on the condition of anonymity, said that Holland's nomination, quote, reflects Biden's determination to confront long-running injustices toward indigenous people in America and to finally and fully uphold our country's trust and treaty obligations to tribal nations. Biden's decision to appoint Holland to head interior will hold profound meaning for the 1.9 million Native Americans whose education and health care are often influenced by the department's decisions. Biden's choice comes as the federal government's relationship with tribes has eroded under the Trump administration, which has removed protections from sacred tribal sites in Utah's Bears Ears National Monument and allowed oil drillers into Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, home to the caribou that Native Alaskans hunt for food. Chase Iron Eyes, a Native American activist and attorney with the Lakota's people, the Lakota People's Law Project, said that while indigenous people have several champions in Congress, he is relieved to see that the department will be run by someone who is a tribal member. Quote, it could have not been our forefathers' dream to have an actual Indian be appointed at the cabinet level in the agency that it's meant, that is meant to oversee their absorption. Charles Curtis, sorry, I get a little choked up over here. Charles Curtis, a Republican who was vice president from 1929 to 1933 under Hoover, was the first person of Native American ancestry to serve in the cabinet. He was a member of the Nation. And we still have no nominee, however, for attorney general, though top contenders are Merrick Garland and Doug Jones. Merrick Garland is seen as an independent, unassailable dude, while Doug Jones is seen as a tough prosecutor. He's known for going after the Klan in Alabama. A source close to Biden has said, those are the competing questions, someone seen beyond reproach or someone close to Biden. As Doug Doug Jones is a longtime friend of Joe Biden, that's why they're sort of having those questions. Another question that the mainstream media is leaving out, and maybe, maybe they're leaving it out because it's actually not a question, but I don't know how it couldn't be, is Merrick Garland, if you elevated him to attorney general, would leave a vacancy on the federal bench in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And without knowing whether we will gain the majority in the Senate until after the January 5th runoff elections in Georgia, we don't know if it will be Mitch McConnell filling that vacancy or Senate Democrats with a tie-breaking vote from Kamala Harris. I think this might also explain the delay in the appointment, but that's just a guess. I really don't know. The nomination of Deb Holland takes the House Democratic majority down to three, though she's from a blue district and it's assumed she'll be replaced with another Democrat in a special election. Uh, Then, of course, the Biden campaign manager, Jennifer O'Malley Dillon, is taking heat for calling calling congressional Republicans fuckers. Uh, But seeing as they are fuckers and seeing as they didn't seem to take issue when president the president said he grabbed a woman by the pussy or grabbed women by the pussy and didn't take no one took any, uh, you know, there was no outrage when uh, somebody called AOC a fucking bitch. Um, Despite all that, Hillary Clinton tweeted today. 
She said, people who stood by Donald Trump for the last four years are now claiming to be offended that a Democratic campaign manager used a curse word. I don't think so. Fuck yeah, Hillary. I'm with you. In other news, I received an email today as a former federal employee from DFAS. That's the Defense Finance Accounting Service. That's who pays government employees, including the military. The email says, since I no longer work for the government and since Trump suspended Social Security tax for part of 2020, I now have to pay that back as a debt, a collectible debt, through an agency to DFAS directly. Now, if I still worked for the government, they would just take it out of my check. They would garnish it. Now, we reported on this quote-unquote tax holiday that Trump touted as this incredible gift uh, because we knew it would have to be paid back. So I've been, you know, taking out my own funds to cover this come next month. But I'm worried about all the government and military families that will now have these funds deducted from their checks in the middle of a pandemic winter. Uh, I'm, start, this starts in January. And I'm hoping that the Biden administration signs an executive order stopping the repayment or at least temporarily delaying it. Because I'm all, again, all for paying my fair share of taxes. But I also have to wonder if this goes back to the general fund and not into the Social Security coffers. We had posited that this was a way to gut Social Security funds to make the program insolvent sooner than it was going to run out of money already. And all this is Republicans want us to be thankful for a $600 coronavirus assistance check, a slap in the face for people who can't pay rent or buy food. Over 30,000 military families are on food stamps, and he tried to cut those too. And now their paychecks are going to be garnished for the forced Social Security tax holiday Trump sold everyone as a gift. And this news just coming in. The FDA has voted for emergency authorization of a second vaccine, this one from Moderna. The efficacy is about 95%, whereas the Pfizer one that was approved last week is at about 90%, both very efficacious. However, we are getting reports that states have been told they're not going to be receiving shipments of the Pfizer vaccine as originally planned. Officials in numerous states, including Iowa, Illinois, Washington, Michigan, and Oregon, have said they have been recently told they would receive fewer doses, sometimes 40% fewer, than originally planned for by the federal government's Operation Warp Speed. The cause of delay remains unclear and comes as infection rates are spiking across the country, and we have record hospitalization numbers. On Thursday, Pfizer put out a statement saying the company was not having any production issues and that no shipments containing the vaccine are on hold or delayed. So it's uh, not only unclear as to why Operation Warp Speed and the Trump administration can't get these out, but it seems real fishy that these states tend to be blue states. I think Iowa is the only one that voted for Trump. Quote, we have millions more doses sitting in our warehouses, but as of now, we haven't received any shipment instructions for additional doses. That's according to Pfizer. And finally, House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler has sent a letter to members of his committee saying he's continuing the investigation into obstruction of justice by reissuing the McGahn subpoena in the new Congress, the 117th Congress that starts in January. And I'll be right back to speak with a congressional reporter from Politico with the story, Kyle Cheney, about that letter right after this. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Fight Camp. 
It's always a challenge trying to stay in shape, especially with gyms closed. We're stuck at home. We want new and fresh workouts. All the gyms are on lockdown. I try to work out at home, but I get bored by the same thing over and over again. So I'm looking for new stuff. And if you're like me and you're looking for an exciting workout that's fun and challenging and not boring, you have to check out Fight Camp. Fight Camp is an at-home boxing and bodyweight workout taught by real fighters. And it's made for all levels, from first-time boxers to seasoned boxers. And it's great for kids, too. It's super fun. The boxing workout is always ranked as one of the best ways to get in shape. And it's honestly one of the most fun ways to get a full body workout and combine cardio and strength training while getting out your anxiety you know yeah fight camp you develop some hand-eye coordination too and fight camp provides all the gear you need they have gloves wraps the best freestanding punching bag on the market and they have this punch tracking sensor that shows you real-time progress and stats on any ios device the workouts are structured like traditional boxing rounds with interval training of three minutes high intensity boxing and body weight training and then one minute of rest so it's that high intensity um, interval workout and you can access over 400 different workouts and all fitness levels and skills they have new ones every week so it's always fresh and you can connect with fight camp on facebook they have over 4,000 members so you can challenge each other and compete and climb the leaderboards so watch yourself reach new milestones bring the goal crushing mentality to every part of your life fight camp keeps you engaged focused and in the zone endless variety uplifting beats motivating trainers and powerful technology all combined to create a uniquely satisfying workout and fight camp offers flexible financing as low as zero percent apr and right now for a limited time you can train and try fight camp for 30 days with a money-back guarantee just go to joinfightcamp.com slash beans that's right try fight camp for 30 days and if you don't love it they'll refund your money train like a fighter and turn your sweat into results to try fight camp for 30 days just go to joinfightcamp.com slash beans again that's joinfightcamp.com slash beans all right everybody welcome back so in a letter to the judiciary committee members from the chair Jerry Nadler has said that the testimony for Don Mc- of Don McGahn remains essential for the one- to the 117th Congress, the new Congress coming in this year. As we know, we've reported that the subpoena for McGahn would expire at the end of the term, making it like, you know, Trump's uh, sort of desire to keep delaying this and delaying this gave him this win, like it just ran out of gas. But the judiciary appears to want to continue this investigation into obstruction. And joining me today to discuss it is congressional reporter for Politico, Kyle Cheney. Kyle, welcome back. Great to be here, Allison. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, really incredible story. Um, I'm glad you're reporting on it. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit of some of the details about this letter. Can you tell us under what authority Nadler is moving to continue this investigation from the 116th to the 117th Congress? Sure. Well, well so first of all, the reason this letter was even issued was because there's a deadline um, uh, for the House overall to tell the courts what they want to do about Don McGahn. And, and uh, the, the courts said, we want to hear, we, we want to hear from you by the end of December, you know, your posture in this case. And so uh, the deadline came and they said, we got to tell the court something. Uh, so they, in a long brief in which this Nadler memo was attached, they said, you know, when the Congress carrot rolls over to the new 117th Congress in January, we're going to do something that's very common that Congress has done for a long time, which is adopt a rule that says any pending litigation that's still unfinished will carry over into the new Congress. And this is how... Congresses in the past have done multi-year lawsuits, things like you know Fast and Furious that the Republicans went after for a long time, um, were able to go for six-ish years because they passed these rules that allow them to, to carry that over. Ah, okay. Yeah, because I think a lot of people were worried, um, not just about the new incoming attorney general, whoever that's going to be in the Department of Justice under Biden, but they were worried that, you know, in the interest of unity, so to speak, that everyone would just sort of leave these things in the past and... You know, was it politically optical 
or were the optics politically good to keep going with a with like a McGahn testimony into obstruction of justice from things that happened years ago? And is everyone tired of hearing about the Mueller investigation? But this, so they had to make a decision, and it appears. Uh, you know, that they're deciding to continue with this investigation. Yeah, that, that was a, something we were wondering, too. And there are a lot of signals that they may reevaluate. But on this particular case, it sounds like either they think they have a strong enough hand that it's worth carrying through. Because remember, this isn't even just about Mueller. It ends up being much bigger than Mueller because it's about the relationship between the executive and, and Congress. And I think Congress would love a ruling that says, yes, you can subpoena and and compelled to testify senior White House officials. Um, now, I think Democrats are worried that you know they could be handing Republicans a very strong weapon if Republicans were to retake the House in two years and Biden is president. Um, but I think at the end of the day, they want clarity on this. They, they don't want a president to be able to run out the clock every time there's an investigation. Um, it, you know, they want to be able to know now and in perpetuity, can they subpoena senior White House officials on very specific subjects like a potential crime committed by the president? Um, and, uh, you know, so they've spent two years litigating, almost two years litigating. Um, they don't want to let this one go. Uh, whether that's true for all of their other cases, um, that's a different story. This tells you Nancy Pelosi's on board because she signs off on any court filings, um, you know, put in the House's name. And so it means she's she's on, in on this one. Mm. Yeah, so kind of like how tortilla chips are merely a vehicle for guacamole. Uh, this is a vehicle to settle this balance of powers uh, battle that's been going on. Like you said, it's been going on for the last over a year, two years. Now, what what are his... I mean, that sort of gives us sort of an underlying reason. Does he say in his letter what his reasons are, why the McGahn testimony is important? Does he say it's a balance of powers or does he say we really need to find out what happened with the obstruction of justice or both? It, it's sort of both. So in, in the legal filing, the court filing from the House, that, that they make that clear. They want to resolve these long, unsettled balance of powers questions. In the Nadler memo, he says, well, no, we very specifically want Don McGahn to testify because forget who's president. We want to address some of the erosion uh, that we saw occur in the independence of the Justice Department under Trump. Um, and that could be that sort of highlighted um, gaps, I guess, in the uh, oversight regime that we may want to fix for the future. Um, so it's not just about necessarily Trump or McGahn, but they, that speaks to this issue that Trump highlighted in how he um, you know, sort of leaned on the Mueller investigation, actually tried to outright end the Mueller investigation. Um, do they need to legislate to sort of put in more safeguards? Uh, and McGahn's testimony could be crucial to that. Yeah, and I, I know that when Nancy Pelosi had released the list of chairmanships uh, for the upcoming Congress and I saw Nadler's name, I was deflated a little bit because, you know, first of all, he he delayed four months to ask for the Mueller grand jury materials. There were, and I was like, ah, is he really going to want to go forward with this? So this was actually um, I was pleasantly surprised uh, by this letter. And now now I'm wondering if this signals a broader desire by Congress to continue with other investigations. For example, like I said, the subpoena to get the grand the grand jury materials uh, from Mueller, which he, he issued July 27th, I think, of 2019, uh, saying we need to do this under Article one impeachment. But that's no longer the reason. So I wonder what, what they're going to do with those kind of cases. I actually wonder about that case in particular, too, because they were supposed to be heard by the Supreme Court in December, and the House actually asked the court to delay it until the new Congress, because they may want to reconsider their posture. And so that tells me that maybe they're not as eager on that one or worried they could lose that one. 
Um, you know, and so they don't want to, I, th I think a lot of times Congresses are very reluctant to litigate, even when they feel like they have a good case, because you get the wrong judges, you get the wrong mix, you end up losing and setting a precedent uh, for the future that Congresses are very reluctant to give up. Um, and so I think they may, what we may be seeing is them sort of uh, winnowing down or whittling down their, the number of cases that they've got that are active to their strong, what they feel is their strongest, or maybe the most beneficial, the best cost benefit. Um, and so I don't know that they'll give up on the grand jury case, but by delaying it into the new Congress, they're giving themselves an out if they decide to take it. Mm, yeah. And if history is any guide, we didn't get the grand jury materials from the Watergate investigation until a couple years ago. I wonder what their reasons were for that <laughs> um, and how they won that case. I have to look that up. Uh, and one last thing I think what's interesting here is a lot of people are like, I hope that the new Department of Justice under Biden and the attorney general go after these Trump crimes and that we see some resolution to this so that it you know deters future demagogue presidents from trying to pull this stuff in the future. But what's interesting here is, is if the Congress is continuing to investigate at least this, if not other uh, cases that we may hear about, criminal referrals can be made to the Department of Justice. And so it wouldn't it wouldn't be on the burden of the attorney general to determine. I mean, yes, they would have to decide whether to take these criminal referrals and go forth, but they don't have to decide it on their own. And of course, we know Biden has said he's not going to do any uh coercion or not uh, in, in either way. This is, an, this is a needle Biden is going to have to thread is, you know, first of all, let's see who he picks for attorney general. It's interesting. It's taken as long as it has for him to identify somebody. And then um, that who he picks will tell us a lot about, is this a turn the page kind of a pick? I don't want to deal with the past. Or is this someone who um, is on record talking about wanting to, to hold people accountable for things that may have occurred, even if it doesn't involve a look back. Um, but yeah, you know, look, Criminal referrals are not all created equal from Congress. You know, the minority Republicans sent a lot of criminal referrals up to Bill Barr's Justice Department that were just sort of one-offs um, that that you knew were just basically more press releases than anything. Um, when they come from full committees or committee chairmen, um, they, they're viewed a little bit differently um, because they have the full weight of that gavel behind them. And uh, so I think if you, because you still have a Democratic House that's pursuing these things, you know, a Judiciary Committee endorsed criminal referral is different than, say, Jim Jordan or Devin Nunes saying, oh, prosecute this person who is, you know, like Sally Yates or somebody um, just for being involved. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that there's a way for Congress to continue to have a hand in this stuff. And if they're continuing to look at McGahn, it means they haven't ruled out uh, those kind of avenues. Yeah. And and. I'm also just going to go ahead and say this, and this is maybe my bias speaking, but Dems, Democrats tend to refer actual crimes, uh, <laughs> whereas the Republicans are uh, a little bit iffy on that, at least the stuff I've seen. But it, you know, it, it, it is the up to the determination of the attorney general. And I, I think of the two leading contenders for attorney general, I don't even know which one is a turn the page and which one's not. If you if you look at Doug Jones or Merrick Garland, who I've heard now are the, t the top two contenders. Uh, I think maybe Sally Yates was being considered and there was a lot of, you know, angst about that. Uh, but because uh, she is definitely not a turn the page lady. But um, I mean, if you refer uh, obstruction of justice crime and you have not just the full weight of the Judiciary Committee referring that crime to the Department of Justice and Attorney General, but you have the full weight of volume two of the Mueller report where the work's already done. Um, <laughs> you know that I think that that 
might have more weight than say a Benghazi referral? Well, and, and the key the key would be um, to if they can uncover anything new or any new wrinkle here, because, you know, look, Bill Barr made the determination not to go forward with the prosecution uh, based on the Mueller report. Um, I'm not sure it would have mattered had had, you know, a Judiciary Committee also then you know made a referral. I don't think that would have weighed any differently on Bill Barr. Um, but you know the Biden Justice Department will have a chance to relook at some of these things. You know, Bill Barr's theory on obstruction was one of the most narrow theories imaginable. So um, you know he viewed that he said tweets and public statements couldn't be construed as part of you know part of that. A Biden Justice Department may have a very different interpretation of that and can relook at old decisions. Um, and decide whether maybe there was sufficient predicate for a obstruction of justice charge. Um, and, you know, maybe the OLC opinion that says you can't indict a president doesn't apply here, although is Biden going to want to give up that precedent, <laughs> um, you know, given, given the, you know, the forces arrayed against him. Uh, you know, there's a lot of question marks on that. Um, and actually, in, in concert with this, the idea that of OLC opinions that were used as sort of a shield for President Trump all throughout, um, you know, has been significantly challenged. And I think a Biden Justice Department might say, yeah, these, these old precedents don't actually apply in a modern world. Yeah. And, and I think, of course, if, if you left it just up to the attorney general, you might not get an investigation. But if you get a poke from the, the chair of the Judiciary Committee saying, we've confirmed the crimes outlined in the Mueller report through our testimony. And of course, executive privilege is waived because McGahn agreed to speak to Mueller. So he can't do that uh, with Congress. Uh, it would be harder to ignore. But then, of course, it all goes out the window if Trump pardons himself. Then the attorney general has to decide whether he wants to or she wants to challenge uh, the corruptibility or the validity of that pardon. And I don't know that anyone's going to want to touch that third rail. It's, that's that's the, the ultimate question, really. If Trump were to self-pardon on his last day or whatever, you know, or step down five minutes before noon and, and have Pence do it or something, which is all the theories out there, um, you know, how you confront that. Um, because, you know, I, I mean, look, the president's got legal exposure no matter what, because he's being investigated by the state and local in uh, New York, right? So, so his criminal exposure is not necessarily gone, no matter what he does. Um, but there's a precedent there of if you can self-pardon, then essentially presidents have blanket power to do anything, um, and that's the fear that some Democrats in Congress have. But it's one of those third rail issues. Yep. Yeah, and ultimately, it's uh, that's sort of what comes down uh, it, on the shoulders of the next attorney general. It's not so much, you know, do I take up this case on obstruction of justice? Do I take up this case on that? It's it's do I challenge the pardon that Trump will certainly get whether he gives it to himself or talks Pence into it? Well, I'll tell you right now that what may what may answer this for them is does Trump hold himself out as running again? It's just, you know, uh, he has in, in, indicated at least that he would consider running again in 2024, you know, if he's ultimately forced from the White House as he obviously is going to be. Um, and uh, the if he's running again, I don't think Democrats can afford to just say, oh, the past, the past, let's move on, because he'll still be out there every day making the same, you know, and still have a, have sway over the Republican base in a way that makes him a relevant figure in politics and government. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think if he says, yeah, I'm running, even if he's just bluffing, they can't just pretend he's, he's not there anymore. 
Yeah, no, and that's literally my dream come true. Not not him running again, uh, but if he decides to, forcing the, the this administration's hand, the judiciary finds that, that there was obstruction of justice, not necessarily committed by McGahn. I think McGahn was off the hook. He 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 did he did the things right. But if they then would have to and Trump pardons himself, then they will have to challenge that pardon uh and 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 file that uh file that indictment on obstruction of justice multiple counts as well. But you know, who knows? We'll see uh because if he's able to get Pence to pardon him, I think that that is not as much of a challengeable pardon as a self-pardon. Right. I think I think that's um Again, we're 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 several le- levels into you know, speculation on this, but it's, yeah. it is things that people have truly speculated about because Trump, has, you know, Trump said, "I have the f- absolute right to self-pardon." Um, Trump has raised these issues himself. Um, you know, the reporting that he's considering sweeping pardons for everyone in his orbit. Um, you know, and a lot of people will be looking for if they do issue those, are they too sweeping? Can you pardon someone for future activity? Which the answer in the pat in the past has been no. You can't say someone if someone commits a crime later uh, you're off the hook so there are limits to the pardon power uh, but we haven't really been t- testing them no and 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 those limits aren't explicitly outlined in the constitution we're applying them and if there are limits to the pardon power then there there can be limits to corrupt pardons too at least that's my view but you know we'll see how it goes well it's all fits to is, is a piece of what we talked about earlier which is the, these are un you know Congress is wary of going to court on a lot of things because if they lose, you set a precedent forever on things that have been very untested. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you're talking. Now we're talking about does the executive branch want to go to court on something it might lose um, and ultimately validate these awesome sweeping pardon of powers that are just uncheckable in any capacity, um, especially with this Supreme Court uh, with the the balance that it has. The Supreme Court is an interesting case because they're ostensibly conservative, but they're also people that are picked to view the, you know, sort of the unitary executive, the sort of supremacy of the executive branch in, in, in a lot of cases. And so would they uphold, uh, you know, but you have a Biden presidency and, <laughs> and so their rulings might actually end up bolstering a Democratic presidency. Uh, so it's very interesting dynamics at work here. Yeah, we'll see. Well, thank you very much, congressional reporter for Politico, Kyle Cheney. I appreciate you explaining this to us today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. All right, everybody, stick around. Coming up next, I'll be speaking with the founder of the philanthropic organization called Pandemic of Love, Shelley Tygielski, and, and the good work she and thousands of others are doing to lend community support where it's needed during the pandemic. So stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. This episode of Daily Beans is brought by the most delicious thing I've ever put in my mouth. It's Magic Spoon Cereal. Since I was just a tiny kid, my favorite food has always been cereal. I just plop myself down, Saturday morning cartoons, have a bowl, like an entire bowl, maybe an entire box, I won't say, and then drink the milk. But as an adult, I've had to give up eating cereal because of all the carbs and guilt and sugar. Uh, but now I'm, t- I'm Magic Spoon is here. Everything has changed. Game changer. This cereal is so tasty, you won't believe it's made without all the sugar, carbs, and guilt. Truly, Magic Spoon is so good for you, you won't believe it's healthy. Forbes magazine says, with cereal that tastes this good and offers so much nutritional value, as opposed to, well, none, Magic Spoon may be the future of breakfast. And I agree. Magic Spoon cereals amazingly have zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving. And get ready for this. I'm going to take a deep breath. It is... (gasps) 
keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, high-protein, and GMO-free. And the best part, it's so delicious. Uh, with four amazing flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. You get that nostalgia. It's delicious. It tastes incredible. It seems too good to be true, but it's not. My favorite flavor right now is blueberry. It's so yummy. And then you get to drink that blueberry milk afterwards. And sometimes I just snack on it dry in the day because it's so good for you. So go to magicspoon.com slash dailybeans to grab a variety pack and try all four flavors. And be sure to use our promo code dailybeans at checkout to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, they have a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it, for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash dailybeans and use code dailybeans for free shipping. And we thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. Today, I am really honored and happy to be speaking with the founder of the philanthropic organization called Pandemic of Love. Uh, please welcome Shelly Tagelski to the show. Shelly, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely my honor, because what you've started is just this, like, fills my heart with joy. Can you tell us a little bit about how Pandemic of Love started and now, like, what it's grown into? Because this is incredible. Sure. So um, Pandemic of Love started uh, around my kitchen table on March 14th. I'm a full-time meditation teacher uh, with a community in South Florida. And I'm not in South Florida right now, by the way, which is why there's a fire behind me. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I, I just really sensed the fear and the um, anxiety that was bubbling up within our community of over 15,000 meditators. And I knew from past experimentation uh, with our community that models of mutual aid and building true communities of care works. Uh, so I kind of took this rise of anxiety and fear and this need that was starting to bubble up in mid-March and uh, just the data points that I had from uh, past experiences uh, in, in creating more equity and helping to um, essentially create a redistribution of wealth on a micro level within our community. Um, and I decided to simply put up two forms. I put up two forms on Google uh, forms using the Google kind of share drive world. And I created one that was called give help and one that was called get help. And the term pandemic of love was not actually a thing yet. Um, I put up a small post uh, 45 seconds on my Instagram and on my Facebook page. And I explained what the forms were. And I said, you know, if you have a need, go to this form, fill it out. And if you have the ability to give, go to this form and fill it out and then we'll connect you. And I just posted it and went to bed and, you know, woke up the next morning, uh, finally got to my computer with my cup of coffee and basically spit my coffee out like all on my screen <laughs> because I just saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of forms and my post, um, pun intended actually went viral. Uh, which is amazing because it's proof that um, not only diseases go viral, but other things can be contagious too, like love and hope and kindness and a lot of very positive things. And um, I started to match people. You know, I started to read through the forms of things that people needed. And I realized, oh crap, this is taking a really long time. I better recruit some volunteers. So I recruited 
volunteers, you know, to, to, to help me with this matching process, this vetting process with the donors matching process. And, you know, didn't really think of kind of the byproduct at that point, but I think one of the things that I'm the most proud of that Pandemic of Love does, so I'll explain it in a very kind of a high level here, but essentially, so we are a mutual aid community for lack of better purpose. And what that means is that we just simply are matchmakers. We connect a donor with a person in need directly by email, by text uh, or otherwise, and we step out of the way and then we let the magic happen. And so sometimes it's like, we call them hit and run donors where it's like a, they pay the bill and see you later. And that's cool because they help the person. But a lot of times what happens is that people connect on a very emotional level and they start sharing stories. And so people on both sides have the ability to feel seen and heard. And what we've seen over the now 1 million matches that we've made since March 14th is that these connections happen across political divides, they happen across racial divides, across religions and cultures and state lines, uh, you name it. And it's beautiful because what it does is it taps into this uh, universal suffering that all human beings are familiar with. I don't care who you are or what socioeconomic status you come from, you have experienced suffering and you have mirror neurons and that's why you cry at really sad movies and like Hallmark commercials. Um, and so, you know, you can empathize with the person, but yet it also triggers something in you where you, um, you know, share something about your life and, and really genuine and beautiful friendships have been, have been formed that have been mind blowing really. They, they've, they've definitely proven that we are all suffering of the same affliction of being human. And that when we kind of boil it down to just that, and we kind of, all the labels that society and the world has forced upon us really since birth, uh, when, when we let those fall away, really beautiful and magical things can happen. Are you able to give us any examples of some of these matches or are there privacy concerns? Can you? No, we've shared them. They've actually, CBS This Morning did an awesome expose. You can actually like Google Pandemic of Love CBS This Morning and you can probably see the clip um, or maybe you could share it if you post anywhere of a, a story of a woman named Beth and a man in New, who lives in Miami, in South Florida and a man in... Uh, Brooklyn, New York, I think, or the Bronx, but one of the boroughs in New York City, who was a, a school teacher, a, a New York City public school teacher. And he um, could not afford the uh, co-payment and the transportation required to go to this appointment that he had out in Long Island with like a specialist for his like neck and throat because he was having like all these issues. And so she sent him um, a care package because he wasn't feeling well. She actually mailed him this like 40 pound care package and in it was also money to pay for that co-payment and to go, um, you know, to, to basically be able to, tr to get there. And he went to this appointment and was diagnosed with throat cancer. And she literally saved his life. Like mm -hmm. it's not even like, you know, <laughs> it's, not metaphorically literally yes she saved his life and and they're still friends and they talk 
almost every day she checks in with him. And the really incredible thing about it is that Beth herself had that same throat cancer 10 years earlier. So, I mean, you know, it's like the universe just connects people in such an interesting way because nobody knew that when we were connecting these two. Another really great story, which I've shared on my socials before, um, is a woman from also from New York City. Um, I would like to describe her as like the typical uh, Jewish, liberal, everybody's Yenta, like Bubby, you know, who's like in New York City, um, who was actually on the forefront of like the social justice movement for uh, gay, gay pride and, and, and LGBTQIA rights. And, you know, back in the day, and she was matched with a woman in Alabama who was a Trump supporter. <laughs> and she went there, she asked the question immediately because she saw Alabama and like already made that assumption. And she didn't want to transact this woman initially. And she contacted her organization very angry and upset that like, how dare you connect me with a person that is actually harming me, like harming and she stands for everything I can and I'm supposed to help this woman. And she wound up uh, deciding after I personally had a conversation with her and I said, look, look, this is an opportunity for you to change her mind because she's probably never been out of Alabama, which she hadn't. And she's probably never met a Yankee New Yorker. And she has all of these preconceived notions just like you do. And so how incredible would it be if you two could just like change each other's minds about each other? And essentially that's exactly what happened. So, um, Eileen wrote us a letter, a beautiful letter, which I shared um, online and it, and it actually Time Magazine shared it as well because it really did show that we just have these like narratives and stories in our head about people and we make these assumptions and that when we are able to actually meet people where they are and really just get down to the basics, then we could develop meaningful relationships and quite possibly even meet in the middle and sometimes even change people's minds. This is incredible. I'm so glad that you're talking to me about this today because all week for some reason, and you know, I'm 100% with you. Sometimes if we just get out of the way, the universe provides, right? And all this week I have had the the pleasure of speaking to John Vanderpool, who put out uh, his his film, American Times, about just, you know, reaching out. And then we talked to Tony Scruggs, who uh, talks about nonviolent communication and empathy, the empathy guy. And we spoke to David Weissman, who is somebody who used to be a Trump supporter, who has, has since, uh, I guess, come to the rebellion. I don't know how to, how to say it, but left the dark side. Uh, but I don't want to put labels on anybody at, at, for this particular conversation. And now we're wrapping up the week with the pandemic of, of love, which is uh, true empathy in action. And get, like you said, getting out of the way of ourselves and a allowing the universe, which is you know, you're you're sort of this arbiter of of uh, universal connections. By the way, that's amazing, and allowing these things to happen. And these stories are so incredible. A million matches you've made, and CBS now, Time Magazine. This is, I think, highlighting this kind of giving and and empathy and caring is is brilliant and it's so important and that that it's culminated to this at the end of this week of my I guess my empathy showcase 
uh, is is incredible. Have you seen these matches? Are they ramping up now uh, because of the pandemic winter? Or have you seen that? Well, so we've gotten a really huge surge in donors over the last week because of that CBS story, but also because we were featured on CNN Heroes, which was incredible. And so we got this huge boost um, of donors. And I'm so relieved that we did because we have seen a huge upsurge in requests and needs over the last few months. Um, we have a special uh, rent relief fund where we have very specific criteria, but we um, disperse about $150,000 every Monday, uh, sometimes a little more, uh, in certain states uh, where our very uh, generous uh, family office that we work with um, you know, has kind of decided what the criteria is, but we, we help to get people back to the reset button. You know, we hit that reset button, they're back at the start line and we help to pay their rent and keep them in their homes. Um, we have a funeral fund uh, and I've never, in, since, since we started this in March, uh, we've never had more requests to help pay for funerals than we have in the last three weeks, which is really heartbreaking because about 65 to 70% of these requests are coming from undocumented families and undocumented workers who are afraid to get the state subsidies and to come forward. And so they have like suffering on top of suffering. And so we try to alleviate that suffering by paying the funeral homes directly. Our donors just call the funeral home, they pay the bill and that's that, you know, they move out of the way. And so there's still that pri privacy um, that's kept for that particular family in need. And, and, you know, it's just a good deed that we could do. Um, and we obviously have so many parents now that are reaching out because they can't afford to have Christmas for their kids. Um, and that's just, you know, it's heartbreaking to want your little child who still believes in Santa Claus to believe in Santa and then have Santa skip over your house, you know? Um, and so we've been doing what we can by partnering with COVID Survivors for Change. And we've identified over 4,000 families that a parent was lost to COVID in the last nine months. Uh, and they have financial hardships as well. Uh, and we've partnered them up and created Amazon wish lists for them. And all of those families will be, have been matched. So they're all going to be getting gifts uh, and hopefully already started receiving them this week. Um, so that's, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of pivoting every time that we see a new need. Uh, and then we're continuing to match an average of 2,500 families a week, new families a week with uh, donors. And it, this is done by the way, on a micro community level, mostly. We have 220 chapters around the country. Uh, we're onboarding another 80 chapters in January. Uh, and we are um, you know, doing this at a micro level and because it's, it becomes, uh, an opportunity for things to not, transactions to not just be financial, right? Uh, sometimes people need help with like a delivery of uh, pharmaceuticals or food delivery, or they need help taking their dog out for a walk because they can't, you know, physically do that. There's just so many different needs that are out there. And the premise really is, is that every single human being on this planet has something that they can offer doesn't just have to be financial. Mm -hmm. And that every person on this planet has something they need. And if we can kind of get down to those basics, I think we can really create true equity. That's so amazing. Uh, stepping in where this administration has failed us. Um, and 
I think um, you're going to see a new need coming up in the new year starting in January. I've just found out because I'm a former federal employee that military families and federal employees who were forced to defer their Social Security tax are now having to pay it back. And so they're going to be doubling that and tripling that, taking it out of people's checks. And if you no longer and if you no longer work for the government, you now have a debt collection for for DFAS uh, that you're going to have to pay back. Um, so this was one of the Trump, you know, I'm going to defer your social to give you a tax holiday because I'm awesome. And uh, and oh, if you reelect me, I'll make it so you don't have to pay it back. Well, here we are. And I think starting in January, you're going to see a lot of military families, over 30,000 of which, by the way, are on food assistance, um, are are going to be having double their Social Security taxes now taken out um, to pay back that tax debt that was supposed to be a gift. And uh, um, I'm I'm worried about these families, um, to be honest. So, hope you know, maybe there's something that we can do to reach out to them as well. Um, but I, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing this with me. Um, <clears throat> this is an incredible story. And uh, can you tell, I, I bet we have a, a bunch of people who want to help. And I bet we have a bunch of people who have needs. Can you tell people where they can go and fill out these forms to be matched? Sure. It's super simple. Just go to pandemicoflove.com. You can click on local and see if there's a micro community in your area. And don't fret if there's not, you can just go back to our homepage and you can see uh, on the bottom there are national forms. So you don't have to be in a particular city or state to be matched. We can match you with an anyone across the country uh, who's willing to help. So definitely, you know, uh, tell us everything that you need. Don't be shy. I know asking for help is really one of the hardest things that anybody ever has to do and that so many people have always been in a position to give. And so it's, you know, um, it's really hard for them to be in a position where the tables have turned, but uh, we're no stranger to uh, people being vulnerable and to, you know, keeping things very safe, creating that safe space for you to ask. Um, so you can feel really comfortable doing that because uh, this isn't our first rodeo. It's now our millionth. So <laughs> we're pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah. And I imagine it's really hard for some people to ask for help. I've seen this in the veteran community um, where they, you know, there's survivor, survivor's guilt, imposter syndrome. I, my needs, you know, what I need is nothing compared to what some other people need. I've had veterans approach me and say, I don't even want to sign up for my VA benefits. I didn't lose a limb or anything, you know, and it's, and I just want to tell everyone, just like you said, everybody needs something, no matter what socioeconomic yeah. path you're on, uh, especially right now in this pandemic winter where I think there's just so much suffering. Yeah. I mean, like saying, saying that somebody, you know, can't get help because somebody has it worse or that somebody can't complain, for example, because somebody has it worse is like saying somebody can't be happy because somebody has it better. And mm -hmm. like, we never say that. So I think if we just, you know, kind of not compare ourselves and just look at our own situation. And I think that, um, you know, we can do more if we're whole. And so if you can allow somebody to kind of help make you whole again, or press that reset button, it will allow you to get back out there and, and help people. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Pandemic of love. I love that you started in your kitchen. We started in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> we call it the kitchen days. 
Um, but I, I appreciate you coming on. The work that you're doing is incredible. Everybody, Shelly Tygalski, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you. Yep. And if we needed more good news, we do have some coming up after this break. Thank you. Hey, everybody, it's AG. My favorite part of the day is my shower. It's quiet, it's relaxing, it's warm, it's fantastic. I have my best ideas in the shower, and that's why I'm excited to tell you about our new sponsor, Nebbia. It's backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook, and it's designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers who spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water. And it's anything but ordinary. The Nebbia enhances your shower experience. It's like a steam room combined with an invigorating shower. After a Nebbia shower, I feel so relaxed. It's like I was at a day spa. The Nebbia by Moen Spa Shower is Nebbia's most advanced shower yet, with twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard shower heads. And despite using 45% less water, the spray is 81% more powerful. Nebbia's atomized droplets rinse shampoo and conditioner out of the thickest, longest hair. It can be easily installed in 15 minutes. It's, if you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebbia by Moen. And it balances functionality with a clean aesthetic. They're beautiful. They have different finishes, including white and chrome, spot-resistant nickel, matte black, and black and chrome. And they offer accessories like shower shelves and shower curtains, which pair perfectly with the shower's stunning design. The Nebbia by Moen Spa starts at just $1.99 for the Daily Beans listeners. And we have a deal for you, too. The first 100 people to use the code BEANS at Nebbia right now will receive 15% off site-wide. Nebbia rarely does deals like this, so this is a great time to jump on it. Go to nebbia.com beans. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash beans to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code BEANS when checking out will save 15%. Again, that's nebbia.com beans and use the code BEANS to save 15%. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news is on the way. And it's Friday. That means I am joined by Amy Carrero for the good news today. Amy, how are you? Hey, I'm so good. It's beginning to look not anything like Christmas here. Oh, yeah? No, it's not. It's fucking hot. <laughs> Hotter. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of cloudy today. I mean, I think it might be in the 60s, which is a little chilly for us out here yeah. on the West Coast, to be honest. Uh, I had to, like, I went for a walk a couple days ago. And I mean, I, I usually go for a walk every day, but I had to have a, a small procedure yesterday. So I took, took a couple days off. But I get to go to the walk and I have like a muffler and some earmuffs and a <laughs> thing around, like a, my gator, my mat, running mat around my neck and like my long sleeve <gasps> thing and I'm like okay here we go and I walk outside and I'm like still freezing cold it's such a baby oh god I love it <laughs> so we have a lot of great submissions today we've got some good news stories I think there's a confession or two in there uh might be a correction and then oh, we have shit. two cases for Judge Amy to hear at the end and there's photos involved I'm very excited um <laughs> Can yeah, you also be the Amy's bounty court. hunter? I've decided I'm your bailiff. I'm your I'm your law clerk. That's okay, what I'm gonna be. <laughs> you love it? Yeah. Yeah. I'll be dog the bounty hunter bailiff clerk. Love it. And then um, also when like me, the judge, doesn't have enough legal expertise, you can also just uh, chime in and uh, <laughs> use the big words. Yeah, yeah, I'll do the law clerk stuff. It'll be fun. Okay, good. Um so if you have any confessions or good news stories or, or disputes, home disputes, you would like uh, Judge Amy to resolve, you can send those in at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. And that's where you do that. So uh, let's kick this off, shall we? Yes. First up, from Amanda. Pronouns, Amanda's pronouns are she and her. Hey, gorgeous ladies. First of all, 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I love you. <laughs> I uh, just have a message for the listener yesterday who wrote in and was feeling guilty for frivolously spending money during a pandemic, unquote. I work in the cultural heritage realm, mm. specifically under the cons- uh, conservation umbrella, and I have to say that she is helping us stay afloat. <gasps> We typically are employed by museums, art galleries, libraries, etc., and work right now is really difficult to come by. If you remember, the Trump holes have been actively and aggressively trying to cut substantial funding for the humanities sector, and a lot of the time we're cut out of the budget. Um, and instead of being employed full-time with benefits, we're forced to be self-employed. To be qualified to be a conservator requires a master's in, in conservation, which loosely equates to Ugh, a, mat- it's so hard. a material science like art history and art, chemistry, extensive internships or apprenticeships. And it's very expensive and time-consuming. Yep. It's literally the best job in the world because you get to help clean and care for amazing art or historic objects and make sure these things survive for future generations. It's humbling to hold a letter written by George Washington in your hand wow. and see the ink he smeared or speculate if, in fact, that is his thumbprint in ink. I digress. It is such an incredibly important oh, job. So cool. too. I know. It's, uh, I would freak out. Um, like, I just I go to the National Archives and I'm like, oh. I can't even, I don't even touch this stuff. (laughs) She goes, it's so incredibly important uh, as a job too. We're the ones making sure the physical constitution can be passed on to future generations, which honestly is probably why the orange menace is cutting funding left and right. What constitution? I don't (laughs) see the real one. Fake news. Anyway, I could nerd out for hours on this topic and have, poor husband, but just wanted the listener to know that the work she is giving us is so welcomed and we're great and we greatly appreciate it. We love working on family heirlooms, especially when they're super sentimental. I start my work day in my home lab every day listening to the beans. So thank you. And thank you ladies for being amazeballs. You are really helping me get through this time. My pod ta- my pod tax is attached. It's a photo of my youngest tiny human in his favorite chair in the house. Oh, <laughs> the chair! Just so everybody, all the listeners know, is is Amanda. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like it's just very a collage of, of <laughs> and his little oh outfit. It looks like Dieter from Sprockets, right? And he's just all over her. Yes, Ugh. or just like a mime, like he's about to go to like mime camp. <laughs> That's so cool. You know what? I have a friend who who like was desperately trying to get into conservation or in art conservation. It's it's so expensive, and it's a really small um, group of people, and and it's just hard to get a job. So and I can't imagine. This was before all of this happened. So thank you, Amanda, for sticking by and uh, doing that super important work. Yes, hundred percent. Love it. Okay. Uh, moving on to the next, uh, no name, just pronouns, she, her. Update from the person who shamed the Walgreens woman into wearing a mask. <laughs> I love her already. My mom is out of the hospital and doing so much better. She's mm. on her way to a full recovery. Yay! Also, when they eventually make a movie about this time, Robert Mueller should be played by Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> for the pet tax. This is how the cats destroyed my beautiful plant. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Honestly, though, can you even be mad at them? They're gorgeous. Look at look at the black one just looking at you like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and what? What are you going to do about it? O-M-G. Uh, I can't wait for everyone to see so this. So cute. Yeah, this is amazing. I'm glad your mom is doing much better and, and on to a full recovery. And listen, I completely... I sympathize with the yelling of, of the people at the in the public spaces. Mm. Like, don't come if you're not going to follow the rules. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. <sighs> okay. Yeah. That And you know what? This was kind of a controversial topic, but the Tom Cruise rant that made its way around Ooh. the internet. Now, 
I've yes. got my own longtime personal problems with Tom Cruise and Scientology. Wait, personal? Oh, oh, oh. I was like, wait, do you go on a date with him? <laughs> and how to help <laughs> see, like, uh, me and his middle tooth. We went out one time. No. Um, <laughs> he, <laughs> he, uh, what I'm talking about, by the way, is if you look at it, it just Google. I almost said Trump. Google Tom yes. Cruise middle tooth and you'll see what I mean. Yes. Um, but but it had to be like in his early years because I don't think he has it anymore. I think he got it fixed. He might have gotten it fixed. But anyway, <laughs> I, I have a lots of personal problems with with Tom Cruise. But you know he his rant about following COVID protocols that production had already been shut down for two weeks one time, and yeah, I agree. And how many people you have to maintain a certain amount of work. I mean, it's not just him. He doesn't give a shit about himself. He, what he's yeah. angry about are the thousands of people, union workers, SAG yes. after people who work in in the industry who when productions get shut down don't have money and if they don't work enough hours they lose their benefits yes and that's and that's incredibly painful for all of the people working in industry because most of them are middle income if not lower income um, people that are union members and have put in their dues and if they don't make their hours I mean, that's why, like, we had to travel to Canada and, like, Hawaii. I mean, like, have to travel. But, like, you know, we went to do work as actors because if we didn't log enough hours, then we weren't going to be, um, uh, qualify for health insurance. Yeah. But, and also, like, a, a larger problem is that the um, insurance companies that insure these productions, they are f- super difficult to work with. And mm-hmm. if one, and if it fails, then nobody's going to be able to get insured and nobody is able, uh, no production is going to be able to get insured or and, and so, and therefore, the thousands of jobs, yada yada yada. I totally agree with you. I totally stand by. Yeah, Tom Cruise. I can't believe I just said that, but he was right. And like you know, and then there's a lot of extras who work on set who you have to come up with yeah. three SAG vouchers in order to become SAG after in the first place. And if you miss an opportunity yeah. for that to get your voucher, then you can't be in the Screen Actors Guild. And yeah. there's just so many weird rules. And then and you know that these health insurance companies are just looking for a reason to say no to you. That's all they do. That's their job is to find oh, a reason to, to cut you. So anyway, yep. I am fully aware that he is, you know, a piece of shit in other areas of life. And Scientology is a cult. And I know that. And so don't at me. But absolutely. But, you know, two things can be true. Yeah. yeah somebody's like a, a broken clock can be right twice a day. I'm like, fine. <laughs> yeah. Fine. If that's if that's yeah, what it is. Totally. Um, next up from at Jeremy S.Y. Tweet. Pronouns he and him. Listening to AG and Amy last week discussing John's complaint about the shower hair, I threw my head back in laughter. <laughs> and with my corn mane, that's not trivial, reminded me of two things. One, I am the guy who changes the toilet paper roll. But we're big recyclers, so we can just toss the empties into the garbage. Oh, so we can't just toss the empties into the garbage. But I never remember right. to get the rolls after. <laughs> I wash and dry my hands, so I leave them stacked neatly on the windowsill. Naturally, this drives my wife's my wife berserk she stuffs them down my shirt or throws them up the stairs at me when i pass by (laughs) naturally i'm unperturbed and have doubled down now i leave messages on them with a sharpie or make sculptures with them by carefully ripping the cardboard cylinders and pushing them together she's taught she's caught on though so i may have to start hiding them so i can get more creative begging the question why don't i bring them to the recycling box in the first place Number two, <laughs> though not a lawyer, I worked as a senior paralegal in securities law, so I too have submitted complaints and filed corporate public documents relating to our lives. The merger of my wife and myself was announced with mergers and acquisitions, SEC filing, and of course, 
Our first child was celebrated with a press release and new corporate uh, registration of the new company's name and its relationship (laughs) to the parent company. I've even created a logo for the corporate stationery. Love to you, my beans queens. I listen every night when my kids go to bed. For pet tax, I include the aged Lenny the Licker. That's the black and white terrier mix. And my girl, Scruffles, or Bitey McBitey McBitey face. (laughs) The black, gray, and brown terrier slash squirrel killer mix. Look at these two. They're so, so sweet. (laughs) Do you remember Best in Show? Oh my God. Yes, I sure do. My favorite movie. (laughs) Oh, so good. It's so horrible. It's just, it's a perfect movie. Catherine O'Hara is a treasure. Oh, oh, oh. I can go, I can do a tight 30 on Catherine O'Hara. I mean, I'm obsessed. But please look at how these paws are crossed. Mm, mm. Just so, you know, just classy. Ugh. And I, I'm, listen, I, I'm, I, I'm okay with, with this, like, making of the sculptures and, and all of that because it's at not least hair. it's not hair. <laughs> so it's not hair. How about you make some binoculars out of it? That might be fun. Ooh, yeah. You know, like, to take two rolls and, and maybe, like, you know. Or like stu- put it put them in her, in her in her stockings for for the holidays. Yeah, nice little surprise. You could tie them together with string and be like, "Hey, <laughs> yeah. call me sometime." Yeah, baby. Hey, Amy, why don't you take the next two? Because the next one is short, so take the one after that too. Okay. Here, here we go. <clears throat> Ba-boom. Amy's court is now in session. There are two cases on the docket today. First up is a case of dog v walk. Oh, all right. I'm sorry. Jax. I thought that was the entry. No. Oh. So you you do this one here. <laughs> you want from Jax? Okay, okay, okay. And then do you want to do the intro or should we, should we just leave no? It? You, I love it. You did really well. So okay. you do the first case okay. here. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, Jax. Uh, the person who submitted this is Jax. He him. Brings this case. Hi, Judge Amy, who I love that. My dog, Schnooky, is the most adorable little cavapoo, now aged 8.5 years. I've submitted some pictures as proof of his gorgeousness. Now, isn't he just? <laughs> anyway, Schnooky has always been a reluctant walker. When other dogs are chomping at the bit to go out, Schnooky leans in for a long stretch and a yawn. In September, Schnooky's other mummy, my wife, passed away oh, after being ill for a year and a half with cancer i'm so sorry our lovely neighbor stepped in and have been walking him daily initially initially schnooky was actually enthusiastic bounding out to greet them and trotting off with them merrily recently however he has started to refuse to go out snarling and growling to chase us away this has become a daily dispute in our house. I believe that as a dog, he should go out for walks, especially as he and I are grieving. I'm told it's good to walk. Schnooky believes the contrary. That since, at best, he walks only reluctantly, and in reality he feels he is a human trapped in a dog's body, he should have the choice about whether or not to go for walks. And indeed, since he is grieving, he should be heard when he exercises his voice. What is the right and just way to resolve this? Oh, my goodness. This dog <laughs> is. Oh, look at the second picture. Just like. Yeah, but look at the puppy. Serving you all the Look looks. at the when he was a baby. Look at the bottom one. Oh, my God. Little baby. Oh, stop it. From, first of all, you know what? In the third picture, he looks just like my dog, Moose. Um, first of all, Jax, I'm so sorry for your loss. That's that's unspeakably terrible. And, and we are holding you in our hearts. Mm. Um, okay, so the verdict, this is a little bit unorthodox, but I think I think it could work to everybody's Like benefit, a compromise? Okay? You got a compromise situation? A compromise. Yeah. A compromise situation. What if you get, Jax, 
one of those like little strollers for those tiny dogs and like put the dog in the stroller because my thinking is that the dog once he's out is going to be like whoa, 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 whoa hold on <laughs> i want to get out and walk but you just have to like be like maybe you just have to kind of coax him out a little bit so i say you definitely deserve to go on a walk you jack's the human and the kavapoo also deserves to go on a walk but maybe he just doesn't want to like use his paws I maybe mean, he doesn't want to go on a conventional walk so try the the little doggy stroller or maybe just like put him like in one of those like little rolly baskets that you can like get for 20 bucks on amazon and see see how it goes see what happens yeah or maybe get him might be fun get him one of those radio flyer wagons and put like a little blankie in there oh. i don't know how big this dog is it looks he looks pretty small he looks like maybe like 15 pounds i think that'll work i love wagons and it you know that's a good nostalgia oh, piece too and it makes a great christmas so gift cute. you know if you got him like a wagon uh, yeah. with a bow on the handle oh my god and put a to put a toy yeah in it. some toys and some treats mm -hmm. love it love it okay oh well thank you very much Jax, for that submission the dog is gorgeous this dog oh so so oh, beautiful i want to he's so fluffy and i want to pet him he looks so soft it looks like such silky fur next up is the case of intention versus perception mm. this is from mm. this is from pavi easiest to pronounce p plus ivy p ivy this is from p ivy hi amazing oh, people cool. i am a finn and a pagan and i listen to you religiously ha <laughs> religiously <laughs> apart from a little notes i have no real reason to contact here on earth we live calm orderly lives waiting for the vaccination and christmas and there lies my dilemma i do live in a very good neighborhood relative to the rest of finland I have a neighbor who sees me as her best friend, maybe because I have loaned money to her. Her family is possibly the original family. The Shameless series is based on high drama. <laughs> so if you've never seen Shameless, you should start. So I love to do Christmas presents myself. I love to do presents myself or use some kind of creativity and make an effort. I knew Mrs. Shameless is huge about the Christmas <laughs> Huge about the Christmas. She the starts Christmas. delivering presents at the end of November. Well, I thought this year I'll use my graphic skills, and I created personalized mugs for her and her on-again, off-again husband, who goes AWOL <laughs> despite strict supervision. <laughs> so I can't. This is too I know, much. I can't wait to see where this is going. So I created a design based around the only decent photos I managed to extract, and not to spoil the surprise, from her Facebook site, their magistrate wedding, and a photo I took in the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> so I made a romantic collage of it with a flower wall background and printed it onto two mugs. Just a practical thing because I know the woman worships personalized things, so I know this will have to be printed on something durable. Case in point, her commitment goes so far, she still wears a t-shirt brought to her from Disney World, Florida. No matter how that one side is, gonna, is, is gone and her tit is out in the open. <laughs> yes, I've seen it, not even just once. And the rest looks torn by a jaguar. But it's real deal from oh, Disney stop. World in Florida, so she keeps it. <laughs> Sorry about the long premise. I do appreciate the court's time. My dilemma is this. I know she will love the mugs to the moon and back, but the husband, probably ex at the moment, it is difficult to keep up, has disappeared again. I know he slithers back home eventually, oh, no. and depending on how bad the fight has been, the longer stays, the longer stay, he stays away, they will play nice when he comes back. So, now I'm biting my nails over it. Do I give the present or not? He might be back home for Christmas, or maybe not. Shall I put this as a deadline, or will I give the mugs... <laughs> 
<laughs> and it might play some part in the couple's reunion? Or will it be a dagger in the heart for her? Please, Amy and AG, what should I do? Or am I selfish wanting to give into this situation? Well, if you have an opinion, I'd like to hear it as I'm torn. I will abide by your ruling. <laughs> Thanks, including my pod dog, Freddie. He listens to you also. He has no choice. Hi, Freddie. Good boy. Oh, my God. I'm obsessed, obsessed with pi- PIV. PIV, please come on the show all right i mean i have no i have no authority to invite you on the show but i would like to have a conversation with pib um she sounds like a treat my best my favorite part is i have a neighbor who sees her who sees me as her best friend <laughs> but pib doesn't see her as her best friend I, ha- I think i have a solution for piv what what would you say well well i mean i would say give give her the mugs i mean you went through the trouble and it's not really listen it's not your job to keep up with the ins and outs of the husband maybe ex-husband so i think it's very clear that you obviously put in a lot of thought and a lot of work and skill into the mugs and i think you should give them to her and if she's like oh no we broke up you'd be like oh and that's it here's here's some alternatives oh you can either fine like piv do you have a photo of you and her together could you make mugs of you and her and have two sets of mugs one of you and her and one of her and him and then (laughs) you know kind of find out sort of sneaky covert the day before whether he's back or not and they're in good graces and if he is right give the mugs with him and if he's not give the mugs with you and her unless you don't want to perpetuate the fact that she thinks that you're her best friend uh but Right. That could be an option, right. right? Or if you don't have time or resources or, you know, to make the new second mug with you and her, uh, then you can always find out the day before if they're together again. And if they're not, you can just X out his face and say fucker on it or something. And then yeah. give those to her like, ha ha, suck that. That guy's a dick. Yeah. That's a really good idea. But if they are back together and you do get to give and you make the the best friends mugs, the BFF mugs, and you have the husband and wife mugs and they're back together, you can give the husband and wife mugs. And then for a later present, you can ha- you'll have yes, those. Correct. You'll have those BFF of you and her picture mugs sort of in the hopper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's what i'm thinking yeah i think that's a really good idea and also i'm assuming that piv is some sort of like graphic designer or something right i mean like it's it's not easy to put a picture on a mug i don't think you might have to special order it but it seems like she's got access to this to this um material so maybe just go ahead and do a plan a and plan b mug or I also like the crossing out of the face or maybe um, like a sticker. You could like maybe put a Christmas tree over his face if he's not around. And then just to give her the option. Or like Rudolph sticker. Yeah, yeah. Because then when he comes back, she could just peel the sticker off. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, those are some ideas, P.I.V. Thank you for writing in. Your dog yeah. is adorable. This little silky or Yorkie or whatever. So it is adorable. Please update us on this. Yeah, we want to hear updates. I would like to know the update on the mug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to know how that goes down. So maybe just take two, take two of our advice and call us in the morning. <laughs> and this has been Amy's Court. Dun, dun. Dun, dun. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for this. We will cl- include all of these pictures in our newsletter. And uh, we will see you all at 4 p.m. at the happy hour. Um, for That's 4 p.m. Pacific times for patrons only if you're a patron. Uh, any thoughts before we get out of here, Amy, for the weekend? Uh, have a great weekend. And uh, oh, and then those of you who are in the Northeast, isn't there like a big big storm or something stay safe wear your masks over your nose please and um i i guess we'll we'll chat on we'll chat on christmas is that the next time yeah 
next time we'll be talking we'll be talking on christmas all right maybe i'll be drunk it'll be fun Ooh, that's a fun like a drunk history with ag and amy (laughs) and i have a promise for you i i promise that what is i'll stay home for christmas for christmas you You can can plan not on having Yeah. We won't have snow because we're in San Diego, but there will be presents <laughs> on the trees. You know what my, my mother-in-law just sent is a huge ham, and it's way too big for two people. So if you feel like driving up to L.A., I will save you half of this ham. No, I appreciate it. I got a little quarantine pod going down here with Joel and Amanda. Um, oh, good. So, you know, we don't. Oh, awesome. I'm so glad. We aren't seeing anyone else right now, Amy. So um... I love it. We're in, we're in, we have our I little, love it. I love we have it. our little pod. We're not in, I can mail you half the ham. We're not a potty amorous, uh, we're not a polyamorous pod. Uh, we, <laughs> we stay together. You sure you don't want this contactless ham? <laughs> I remember I was trying to make a ham. I was like, I don't even know how to fuck to make a ham. So I, I took a picture of it. I put the whole ham. It's like a 20 pound ham. I just put the whole thing in my, like uh, in my George Foreman grill and like here, and I took a picture of it. I was like, this is how this works, right? You just put it in the foreman is that not how it works because i it's this this is like a fucking honey baked ham i was just gonna put it in the oven yep that's all you do it's they're delicious too if you have that okay glaze to put on it and then my mom's like i just put a little just put a little orange Mm -hmm. juice on it i'm like what um what orange juice and then cloves Mm. take cloves and like stick them in you know cloves look like little thorns you just stick them in there Mm, it's delicious and then some sugar and then bubbles so good okay I love it. All right, everybody, you have a wonderful weekend. We will see you Monday morning. And until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of your mental health, and take care of the planet. I've been AG. I've been Amy Carrero. And them's The Beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.